Today's episode of the More You Know podcast features Barry Katz, who's an Emmy and Grammy award-winning producer, podcast host, and talent manager, most commonly known for launching the careers of Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K., Dane Cook, Jim Gaffigan, Burt Kreischer, Whitney Cummings, Wanda Sykes, and many more. Enjoy this episode. trying to make it all make sense the more you know podcast is it still important to live in a city like new york or los angeles to find success in media or show business i think when it comes to living anywhere i think it's proven that if you're creating your own content you could live in indonesia and create stuff that's as impactful as Chappelle or Bill Burr or Tina Fey or Jim Jeffries or insert name here. But if you're not creating things right away and putting them up and self-broadcasting yourself with your own distribution platform, which essentially is the internet, and you want to be in a place where other people are creating opportunities and giving you the opportunity to come in and audition for those opportunities, then naturally New York and Los Angeles are the places to be. And of course, if you're in New York and Los Angeles and you're creating your own content and you're auditioning, Obviously, that's the best case scenario. In terms of choosing one over the other, I think if you're a stand-up comic, New York is a great place for any comedian because there's so much stage time. And in Los Angeles, there's not as much stage time. So if you can get on a seven times a, a week in New York or one time in LA, well, who's gonna be seven times better as a comedian? It's obviously gonna be the person who goes on more. But if you're focusing on being a film and television actor or have some place in front of the camera, uh, there's a lot more opportunity in Los Angeles. If you want to be a Broadway actor and somebody who's really, really doing great things in the theater, obviously New York might be a better place. So you just have to figure out where you are in your career, what you're doing, what you want to be doing how you want to be doing it. But I think it's been proven out. You can just look back to the South Park guys, Matt and Trey. They created a Christmas animated Christmas card. And and they gave it to friends that they had lower level in the industry. And they passed it around. And Comedy Central bought it. And they ended up making a series that's gone several, several years and made millions and millions of dollars. And yes, they were not in Peoria, Illinois or Melbourne, Australia, but I think everybody will agree who's watching this, if they did create that and they were living in Jacksonville, Florida, but they submitted it to lower level executives all over by email I would have to believe that they would still be noticed and they would have still been flown out. 
and they would have still gotten a deal and become what they are today. Can you please explain the fallacy that is overnight sensations? I think it's important to understand whatever business you're in that everything has happened. So there's a person who was working in the tobacco fields that wins the lottery and is financially set for the rest of their lives. When I was on the Boston University swim team, there was a guy who never worked in practice, never did anything. The guy won every race. You know, other people worked much, much harder than he did. They didn't win every race. Some people worked as hard as he did. Some people worked a thousand times harder. I don't want to say they worked hard, but you know what I'm saying? And there's all different results. Anything can happen and will happen. So are there overnight successes? Yes, there are. And are there as many as people think they are? Like is Tiffany Haddish an overnight sensation? No, she's been doing it for 20 years. Um, so normally every single comedian who's been the lead of a sitcom that's gone to syndication has been doing comedy at least 10 years. There's only one comedian or comedians I know of that went to syndication and that was the Wayans Brothers show. And, and I think they did stand up a little bit and they, but they hadn't been doing it for 10 years. So normally it takes time. You gotta put the time in, but um, there's no measure of how things happen or when they happen. We can look at movies that mirror the truth, like uh, Matthew McConaughey's first movie, A Time to Kill. Well, did he deserve that role? I mean, there were many other actors that have been doing um, great work in film and television for years. Um, but he got the gig, and it broke him as a star, and he was wonderful. Was there another actor out there that might have been able to do a better job? Maybe, but you know, he got a shot. That's the way things happen in this crazy world. Dane Cook worked for I think 15 years and I remember him getting turned down by so many different people and then when he started getting involved in the internet, he said to me, uh, he said, listen, I'm going to create a noise that's so loud, Hollywood will have to listen. And he did. So I hope that answers your question. Um, there's always going to be situations where people break through and they haven't been doing it that long and they do amazing things. Look, Whitney Cummings, I believe, was doing stand-up comedy about six or seven years before she got three television shows going in one year. Unprecedented. Um, but, you know, Ellen had been doing comedy for many, many, many years and got something going. 
So you always have to know that there's no time limit. Anything can happen. And instead of worrying about whether somebody's an overnight sensation or they're not, I think everybody has to worry about creating great, extraordinary work. And if you do that over and over again, your time frame from when people notice moves up tremendously. In your opinion, what makes someone a star? Well, my opinion might be different than other people's opinions, but to me, one of the things that's, I think, most important is that you have a connection to the people watching you. It's like magnetism. Normally, it's best to be huggable and lovable, but let's face it, you know, Dennis Leary did rescue me for four or five years, and he certainly wasn't huggable and lovable, and neither was Brian Cranston, you know, but there was something about these flawed characters that made you want to watch, and you were drawn to them. I don't think Dexter was huggable and lovable. I don't even think Nurse Jackie was huggable and lovable. But there's that charisma and magnetism, and when they connect, through film and television, there's this fascinating thing. It's like, it's like if you've ever seen the old Commedia dell'arte, I hope I pronounced that properly, where hundreds of years ago they put on the masks and they just have the eyes and the mouth. Um, and the acting was so powerful a lot of times without speaking because the eyes and the mouth and how they played out the emotion of what's happening. The same with stand-up. It's, it's always a situation where you have to connect with something that somebody's saying. Now, is Bill Maher as huggable, lovable as Louis Anderson? No. Is Jim Jeffries as huggable and lovable as Chappelle? No. But there's a visceral, like, like just something that you can't even quantify that, that moves you as a viewer to where you just are watching and you're like, holy shit. I, I just, I can't believe what I'm feeling when I see this person. And I think that to me is the biggest thing that you look for. Because if you can have that kind of connection, that means your whatever performance you're doing in a play or in a film and TV project or a web series or even your stand-up. Even if you're a magician, 
you know, it's, it's that thing where you connect with people and they go, holy shit. I'm going to tell people about this. I'm going to bring people back to see this movie. I'm going to tell them about this TV show and to stream it and watch it over and over again. Um, I have two sons, 14 and 15. You know, one of my sons has watched every episode of The Office, every episode of The Simpsons, every episode of Family Guy. That's a lot of episodes. Now, either I'm a bad father or my son has connected and resonated with something really special. The writing, the performances, to where he can't stop. It's like an addiction. So if you as an artist can create the heroin to inject into your audience, then they will stay with you until they figure out a way to detox off of you. What is it about yourself that you believe sets yourself apart from other managers in the industry? <laughs> I'll take this. Um, what sets me apart from other people in the industry is that I'm doing an interview with my dog Lila licking my face. And clearly, I don't care about it. Uh, no. Uh, what sets me apart? Um, I think what sets me apart is what hopefully sets everybody watching this apart, is that we all have the experiences in our lives that we've gone through. We all have the good, the bad, and the ugly. And those things make up the DNA of our journey and how we see the world and how we figure out how to navigate from one thing to the other. We all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And, you know, one of my strengths has always been that I, I can generally tell if somebody's gonna make it. And with my skill set and theirs, if we work together the right way and no one complicates winning, we're going to do great things. And so I've been fortunate that I've represented probably over 20 artists that everybody knows as household names who have made millions and millions and millions of dollars who started in a studio apartment when I met them. Um, and I'm really grateful about that. So that's one of my strengths, but one of my weaknesses uh, might be that I, you know, there might be something that I, I'm not as great at. Who knows, maybe uh, one of my strengths isn't judging whether, who knows, whether somebody's web series might be uh, the strongest or whether their screenplay is going to be the best that it can be. 
I'm not saying that's not my strengths, but what I'm saying is, is that I think the thing that defines me more than anything else, if people were to ask about my positive qualities, we don't want to go into my negative qualities because uh, we'll run out of a video uh, bandwidth here. But I've always been able to um, evaluate who I believe could get to the next level. And then if I did get involved in their careers, the evidence will show that many, 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 many times things have gone extraordinarily well um, through my persistence, my passion, and my perseverance. What is your best piece of negotiation advice? The best piece of negotiation advice is going to seem so simple. And it's the word no. The problem is that a lot of artists don't give me the license to use the word no. But the greatest negotiations I've ever had is an artist that comes to me and says, you know, I just want to let you know, I don't really give a shit if I do this project or not. So if it goes away, I just want to let you know that there's no hard feelings. I don't care. And that was my dog. Sorry. I don't care. And I'll just move on. And they actually are believable when they say it and they mean it. So in other words, that if it does happen and the deal is extraordinary, they're fine. If it doesn't happen and the deal is shit, they're fine. So if you have that going for you, you're going to score as a negotiator because you can keep asking for the world over and over again. You can keep coming back and coming back until they finally say, listen, um, take it or leave it. And then you can go to your artist and say, do you, do you want this deal or not? And they can say no. And you can just go back to them and say, it's a pass. And that drives them crazy. And then they'll come back to you again and say, what about if we do this? And you'll always get the best deal possible if you have the ability and the power to say no. There's three kinds of deals out there, okay? There's the deal when the person you're negotiating against hangs up the phone after the deal is closed and they're like, yes. We really fucked Barry on that one. And there's the deal when we hang up the phone and I go, yes, I really got over on them. I got the best deal possible for my client. That was incredible. And then there's the deal where we both hang up the phone and we're like, eh, that was fair. If you want the deal where I'm getting off the phone going, yes, then as an artist, you have to tell me to say no. Can you please share something about the behind the scenes of the comedy world that most people are unaware of? I think one of the things that most people are unaware of in the comedy scene 
is the fact that how incredibly competitive it is for people to move forward and get to the next level. There's so few spots in stand-up in LA that some of the greatest comedians that you can think of can't even get spots in certain places because there's just not enough time to go around. So, and then when you are starting, a place like the Comedy Store will have like 30 comedians going up on a Monday doing three minutes. How do you break through doing three minutes with 30 other people and the comedy booker is there watching you? You have to blow people the fuck away in 30 minutes, and three, I'm sorry, in three minutes. Three minutes. And then you have 29 other people trying to blow them away. And so, yes, behind the scenes, I think people are friendly. They're kind. I think they genuinely want to see people do well. But I can guarantee you that if all 30 of those people are drowning in the ocean and only one can be saved, well, every single one of them is going to try to save themselves. Every single one of them is going to try to get to shore, get to safety, get to where people can see them again. And so every time you go on stage, you don't even know if it's your last time because you could bomb or you could not make an impact with the booker. And then you're back to a shittier comedy club. And to try to get back into a place that you got out of, or that you got tossed out of, or that you got weeded out of, is next to impossible. So the key is you have to, while you're going through the process, you have to blow people away. I know this is a common theme, but I don't care what profession you're in. If you're in a cubicle in an office and you want to have your own office, well, if you think that you're the only one who wants that office, you're sadly mistaken. Everybody in the cubicles wants that office, but there's only one office. And so you have to figure out how to do that. And I think that's one of the things that people don't see when they go to comedy clubs. They just see a show. They see like, sometimes if they're around here in LA, they see eight comics, they see 10 comics, and they're like, oh, that was a good show. But I guarantee they know who the funniest person was that night. And if they know who the funniest person was that night, chances are the waitresses, the bar staff know. Chances are the guy running the room knows. Chances are the waiter knows. Chances are the doorman knows and the person selling tickets. And most importantly, chances are the guy who books the room knows. But you just see it as a show. But every show you see is an evolution of progression of artists fighting their way upstream like salmon, trying to get to the promised land.
Can you please explain what happened and what was learned from the only comedy special you were unable to sell? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I've, I've produced, I believe, 37 comedy specials. And, or 38, and I've sold 37 of them to networks. Um, a lot of the specials that I've done, the difficult thing about producing our specials psychologically is the fact that not all specials are created equal, and the material on all specials aren't always equal. And so you're, you're working hard to, to be great for the artist to try to get their special going, whether you represent them or not. But unfortunately, the content isn't always as good as some of the others. And sometimes it can get to you. In the case of the special that I didn't sell, which I think I can talk about it. Um, to me, it's a special that I was really proud of what the artist did. Um, a great, great comedian who probably doesn't get as much due as a stand-up comedian because he spent more time as a writer on shows like Blackish or... Um, Everybody Hates Chris and a lot of different shows. And his name is Owen Smith. <clears throat> and Owen had the idea of shooting the first special ever on iPhones. Never been done before. And I was working with him and we put it together and we, I mean, he did most all of the heavy lifting because it was his concept and idea. And we shot it in a small venue in Santa Monica, the West Side Comedy Club, which um, is a very tiny venue, really cool though. And he bought 10 iPhones. We shot the special and he returned the iPhones the next day. Um, might not have had the greatest integrity but it was fascinating. But I think the problem that I ran into was the fact at that time trying to sell it, even though the concept was so original and unique and nobody had done it before. I don't even know if anybody's done it since. But the fact was at the time, no one really knew him as a stand-up. And even though there were points in my career where years ago I could sell specials for Kyle Cease and Aaron Cairo and people like that who nobody really knew at the time, that was a time when people were looking for our specials with people that they didn't really know. And in this cycle of the last five years, it's been much different. And so the comedians that get the specials have either made a name for themselves through social media or through their own uh, efforts on podcasts or things like that that have exploded. 
and Owen was a guy whose career was extraordinary in the writing world. And his stand-up was just as extraordinary, but he wasn't known for it through the masses. He didn't have a huge social media presence. So I think that was difficult to swallow for me because the concept was more original than any special that I've ever done in my life. Maybe except for Dane Cook in the round at Madison Square Garden or Boston Garden where, you know, nobody had done a special in the round, I think, since maybe George Carlin, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and certainly no one had done one in a 19,000-seat venue. But with, with a 19,000-seat venue with 18 cameras. But I think Owen's special it bothered me because it was so original, so unique, so special. But because of where he was at that point in his career, it didn't get the due that some of the other specials I sold did. And I can honestly say that special is a great special. The material's extraordinary. He's great. And it's done uniquely and originally. And there's many specials that I did as I look back that were not as well done as that one that sold. So I think that's probably something that I'll have to live with as long as I am in this business, which probably after this interview, uh, I'll be out of the business. But I'm grateful that you had me, and um, thank you so much. It was an honor doing this. I'm just trying to make it all make sense. The more you know podcast.